Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you for this day. And Lord, I just want to take a moment and thank you that uh, we're all here. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for what we're going to look at today. And God, I just ask that you would guide and direct um, our thoughts. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct my words as I, as I talk today. Lord, help it not to be my own opinions or thoughts, but Lord, truly truth from your word. And I just pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, before I jump into our passage for this time, I thought uh, since we've been off for a week, I thought we could do a nice little review and just kind of think about where this is going. And, then, and I, I just want to put down here right now, this is important, okay? What I'm, this review here is important. I'm not doing this willy-nilly. I have a reason for this. Acts is building. There's, a, there's an aspect of this story that's building towards something, Okay. So it starts off, and then it's going to build, 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 and when we get to chapter 7, there's going to be kind of like a, a pivotal moment where it's all going to build up to this moment. This, this pivotal, important thing is going to go boom. It's going to change some things about the church. And so it's important to understand that. So I want to go kind of go back. Let's start, go back to chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 1, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Okay, so just kind of think back of what we've learned in Acts so far. Jesus tells them, wait in Jerusalem, the disciples. And so they say, okay, we'll wait. Jesus ascends. Uh, while they're waiting, they pick a replacement for Judas Iscariot. And that's about what chapter 1 is all about. Chapter 2 starts off with the fact that it's Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. Uh, this Jewish holiday. And on the day of Pentecost is when the Spirit comes. So Jesus said, wait for the Spirit. The Spirit's going to come. And sure enough, that promise holds true. The Spirit comes just like Christ promised and it's described like a rushing wind coming through. That's how they describe it, like flames of fire on their head. And as they begin to speak in other tongues, other languages, they kind of flow out from the upper room into the streets, and it draws a crowd. They're near the temple, and people are hearing them in, in all of their own languages and just marveling at this, wondering about this. Peter takes this opportunity, as we'll see, he's going to do this several times, he takes his opportunity, he kind of just kind of leads the group, and he opens up into a sermon. And so chapter 2 unfolds to the sermon that Peter is preaching, where he explains the meaning of what is happening, tying it to Old Testament truth. He's tying it in and explaining what's happening and why this is going on, how it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's connected with the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah that Peter has no problem pointing out and saying the Messiah that, right, and he's looking at these people saying, the Messiah that you killed. You put him up for crucifixion. But then he calls them to repentance, and the Bible tells us that many people believe. Chapter 2 ends with these first believers together, and it's the first summary in Acts, and it ends with them helping each other, uh, assisting each other, sharing what they had with each other. And one of the reasons for this is the church is mostly, primarily composed of, I love this about the church, composed of the outcasts, the downtrodden, those who Christ might call the poor in spirit. That's the church. Chapter 3 opens up. Peter and John are on their way to the temple again. So they're still in Jerusalem. Peter and John are away there to the temple. This time they stop and they heal a man who is lame from birth. 40 years old. Obviously a, a significant fixture at the temple. Okay, So imagine all the people that live in Jerusalem all the times they've gone to the temple. And they've seen this uh, lame man there, he's like, the, the, that's, that's what we always see. He always sits in the same spot. And Peter and John come through, and today they say, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we have, we'd like to give to you right now. And Peter reaches out his hand and says, rise up and walk. He rises up, and as we know, he doesn't just rise up, he kind of 
leaps up, I think, bounds off into the temple, leaping, the Bible says, leaping and praising God. This again draws another crowd. This man is hopping through the temple, praising God. Peter takes the lead again and preaches. Peter just uses every opportunity, doesn't he? Every chance he gets, he takes it. That's important. We're going to come back to that later. Again, explaining the meaning of the miraculous. Again, he's focusing on the fact that these people are responsible. But again, he calls them. He says, you guys killed the Christ. But guess what? It was all according to God's plan. And there's hope. And so he offers up this call to repentance again. But this time they get interrupted near the end. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests interrupt the situation. Chapter 4 starts with this interruption. Peter and John are taken into custody, held overnight. The next day they're brought before the council. Do you remember this story? Brought before the council. Peter, again, what does Peter do? Takes the lead again. And she just loved Peter. Foot in the mouth disease as he was a disciple, always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. But man, God has just turned this guy around, hasn't he? Peter takes the lead again, this time explaining to these leaders the Messiah, the meaning of this lame man leaping. And he points out, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he's looking at these council members and he's saying, that's you guys. You rejected the, the cornerstone. This, this has been prophesied that this would happen. But in essence, he's saying there's still hope even for you. Council members, there's still hope. He calls them to repentance. I think I see a bit of a theme in Peter's preaching, right? Explanation of what's going on. Tie it to Old Testament. Explain who Christ is. Call to repentance. Call to repentance again and again. Peter and John are released after they were threatened. They go back to their friends, the new church, explain what happened. And this time the group prays together and they pray for boldness. They say, Lord, let us be bold in our, way, our witness. There's another summary at the end of this uh, chapter where we find out that there's a few well-off people, people who have some, some financial means, and one of them is Barnabas. Barnabas sells this piece of land, takes the whole proceeds of it, brings it to the apostles, lays it at their feet so that they can distribute so that everybody in the church, there's nobody in the church that is lacking anything. And so God is using, even though the church is primarily composed of those who are poor and outcast and downtrodden, God is bringing in some other people that have some means, but these people are not just saying, hey, this is just for me. They're going, you know, hey, I, I can sell this and, and, and distribute it and help everybody else that's part of this new fledgling church. Chapter 5, we talked about two, two weeks ago, starts off with a little bit of a turn. I love that Luke does this. Luke doesn't kind of skip over the, the ugly parts of history. He goes right into detail. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Chapter 5 starts off with this. Ananias and Sapphira, I think, seeing maybe the praise that Barnabas got, even though Barnabas wasn't doing it for that purpose, they think, hey, we've got this piece of land. They conspire together. This husband and wife, they keep back part for themselves. They give the remainder to the apostles for distribution. This in and of itself would have been okay. But they play it off as if they gave every penny from the cell. Peter confronts, and God judges. And Ananias and Sapphira drop dead. Right there. The Bible tells us that the church was then full of fear, great fear. 
a reverent fear. I think Satan, we're seeing attacks from the outside as they're being threatened from the Jewish leaders, but you also see these attacks. Satan likes to do both, doesn't he? God is going to protect his church. Now, we're all caught up. We're getting ready to jump into the next section. But remember, like I said, the story is building. We're seeing the attacks get a little bit more intense from within, and we're going to see now from without. Okay? We're going to see that the threat from without will serve a different purpose and may be handled by God in a different way. Because one might think, after the story of Ananias and Sapphira, one might think, now I, I want you to think about this. One might think that if somebody tries to oppose God's church, whether it's through hypocrisy like Ananias and Sapphira or the others, one might think, well, God's going to jump in and defend it. One might even think that if Peter and John get pulled in again, this time, it may, maybe you might be sitting there going, man, that'd be awesome. But maybe this time, the Jewish leaders might just drop dead. Right? I mean, wouldn't you kind of be thinking that? I would. I'd be thinking, man, these people are opposing just being, being hypocritical. Who, who knows what God's going to do if uh, the Jewish leaders oppose us? What if they get, get right on us and they say, we're going to punish you? What, God, what might God do at that point? We're going to get to see what he does. I think you might be surprised at how God responds. Now, I'm going to read kind of a large passage. And I'm going to kind of stop and do some little commentary as we go. Uh, Charity pointed out to me a couple weeks ago. She says, you, you have this way, and I never thought about it. But when I'm, when I'm preaching from Acts or any of these, these stories, right, the narratives, she says, you have this way of, like, building on all these details. And she goes, I'm sitting there listening to you thinking, is there a point to all this? And, then, and, and can you hear her say that, can't you? Uh, is there, where are we going? Are we going somewhere with this? And then at right at the end, like, like this, and just like, I try to drive the nail in. I think I might do that again today, okay? Not on purpose, but that's just kind of how it turns out. So we're going to take a look at this big chunk. And I want you to, I think that you'll get the most out of this if you're able to try to enter into this story. This is our story. This is the history of the church. And so if you could just in, try to enter into the story about what's going on, think about what's happened, where the, this church is at, how many people are there that are part of it now. And we're going to jump right into uh, chapter 5, verse 12. And I don't have control if you want to. There we go. Chapter 5, verse 12 starts off and it says this. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. This time we're near the temple. None of the rest, this is interesting, none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. So imagine in Solomon's portico, this, this area outside the temple, uh, imagine that the church, they're getting together for teaching and preaching, right? Kind of like a, their church service, right? They're getting together for that. And it says none of the rest, and we think that the rest is talking about non-believers. So there's other people who are, they're not believers yet, but they're kind of, they're, they're seeing these Christians over there, and they're kind of keeping their distance, right? But they hold, they hold them in high esteem. They're holding them up there. Yeah, they, I mean, that's, yeah. I, I wonder if maybe some of that's in connection with Anna, the story of Ananias and Sapphira may have leaked out. There's a healthy reverence, I think, for uh, what's going on. There's maybe a fear that partial allegiance to this Christianity uh, might result in judgment. We're not sure. There's definitely a healthy respect for the early church. It goes on, it says, and more than ever, and this is weird because, okay, so there's people keeping their distance, but then it says, and more than ever, Believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. I love that, by the way. 
That's very different from the culture of that time where they would have only considered the men as being important. But the Bible points out, hey, there's men and women being added to the church. So they, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. And their hope was that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So, I mean, Peter has become such an influential figure that people are thinking, man, if, if he walks by, maybe if it's just his shadow falls on this sick person, they'll be healed. It's pretty neat. A couple things, like I said, to point out here. It could be a bit confusing. We just read that they were keeping their distance. But now we read more than ever new believers. I think that this can be understood when you consider that the distance was being kept when they were preaching in the temple. Outside of this, the loving efforts of the people is what was drawing them in. So this, this reaching out for the sick and healing of the sick is drawing people in. I don't think it's that much different today. I think there's a lot who have a health and respect or fear of the assembly of believers. Let me, let me just give you one example where I think that plays out. How often have we heard somebody go, I, I, you know, they, I, I just don't know. If I step foot into the church, I think the walls might crumble down on top of me. Isn't that kind of the same thing? There's this, this healthy respect. There's this, this fear of like, I don't know what it could mean to, to really jump. I, I think it's kind of the same thing. Our job as evangelists, I think, is to begin by demonstrating the love of Christ. And we're going to come back to this again as well. We're going to come back to this because this, this is what it becomes all about. Their people are being added to the church, but it's not just because they've stepped into the assembly to hear the preaching. There's, there's this reaching out of the people and, and ministering to the sick, the outcast, the downtrodden, right? These sorts of people. Second, I think that there's definitely an aspect of the uniqueness of the apostles' ministry. I mean, nobody's like putting sick people underneath my shadow as I walk past, right? I think there's definitely some, especially when I had the flu two weeks ago. They really not get, they don't even, they don't even want to touch my shadow. Um, uh, I, I just want to share a thought on this because I think that ultimately we know that prayers for healing, I mean, we know that that God still heals, right? But we know that there's a uniqueness to the apostles' ministry where God is uh, uplifting and, and, and supporting the, the, this ministry of Peter and the apostles in such a dramatic way. For us, we still know that God answers prayers for healing. The difference is that sometimes instead of saying yes now, sometimes God says, it'll happen, but it'll be later, right? If not, if not no other time by the resurrection. There is always going to be healing for us. But I think that this whole idea, this, this, this care for the outcasts is still played out in ministries that, even Christian ministries we have in this town. I think of the ministry that Katie's involved with, the, women, with the women's care clinic. I mean, there's, there's so many ministries that we have in here in town that are Christian ministries that are reaching out. And I think that's why it's so important to support those things. But now let me get back to the, the reference here. Okay, so Acts, then verse 16, it says, The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. So the, the news is starting to spread, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the church is growing dramatically, but primarily with those who we would call the poor in spirit. The word spreading. I love this little summary. I believe uh, this, third, this is the third summary in Acts, what we just read. Um, this one speaks to how the gospel ministry reaches those who are poor. But we're going to take a look now. What about the other side of the spectrum, the prideful? Okay, Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, 
and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees. Now, let me just give you a little insight. Okay, I don't want to bore anybody. Am I getting bored yet? No, I'm not. Okay, so, little little insight. So, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Two almost like political parties. They were definitely religious parties, but they're almost like political parties that were working kind of the, the controlling, the... the uh, the political aspects of the, this Jewish society. So you got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees. And at this particular time, the Sadducees have the primary influence, right? They're the ones that have the, 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 the biggest impact. Now, there's some Pharisees. We're actually going to see some of this play out. There's some Pharisees that are part of the council, but right now, it, it even says right here, the party of the Sadducees. So the Sadducees are the ones that are kind of in control. The Sadducees loved power. The Sadducees loved being in power, being in control. The Sadducees were liberal in their theology. They didn't believe in miracles or the miraculous. I've talked about this before. right? They didn't think that there was a resurrection. We actually see, if you go back to the Gospels, there were times where Sadducees came to dispute with Jesus, and one of their disputes had to do with the resurrection, and he really put them in their place on that. But that's the Sadducees, and, that, and that's why I always like to make the joke, even though I've done it before, that's why they're so Sadducee. They don't believe in the miracles. It's funny every time. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> <clears throat> the apostles, what are they doing? Performing miracles. How do you think the Sadducees felt about that? I mean, it's, it, it kind of is blatant. I mean, that would undermine their influence and power. Because if they're teaching, there's no miraculous, and these people are doing miraculous things. If the, if the apostles are teaching, Jesus was resurrected, and they're saying there is no resurrection... Aren't the apostles undermining the Sadducees' authority and their power? How do people in power respond when their power is undermined? Do they respond well? Do they go, oh, that's okay? They don't, do they? That's exactly what we're seeing here. So let's see what happens. So uh, it says uh, they, they were filled. In fact, you see this next, right? They were filled with jealousy. That's insightful, isn't it? It wasn't about truth. It wasn't about what's right. The Sadducees are going, I mean, they're, they're, they're seeing the influence of the, and there's tons of people following around, and, and they're like, I want everybody to look to us. There's the jealousy aspect, and I think they're, they're sensing the, the loss of the power slipping through their fingers. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, I love this, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, now, see, they've taken the apostles into captivity before, kept them overnight and questioned, questioned them the next day, right? That just happened. So they're doing the same thing. But this time, something different happens. The apostles are in there, and this angel, we don't know, this is all we know about this story. At some point, an angel shows up, an angelic messenger shows up, opens doors, lets the apostles out. And notice what he says. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak uh, to the, the people all the words of this life. So the, this angel says, hey, you guys, go, go ahead. Come on. Let's go out. And, and the apostles are like, okay. And they're walking out, and the angel says, get, just go back to the temple and start preaching again. Right? They were just there in prison for this, and the angel says, go back. And, and what do they do? When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I mean, talk about just... I, I, I just picture them chomping at the bit, like maybe they rested for a little bit, but then they're like, sun's up, guys, let's go. 
back to the temple and they start teaching again. Now, when the priest came, he's thinking it's going to be just like last time. Let's go get the guys. Let's have another chat with them. Hmm. Those were with him. They called together the council and they're all getting there drinking their... I don't think they had coffee then. You know, they're, they're getting warmed up for the day and they're getting ready to have this council. Maybe they're talking with each other about what they're going to say to him this time. They sent to prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. And so the report hasn't even gone out. So the council members are waiting. The, the guys go, you know, can you imagine them off to the, the prison to get the apostles? Like, you know, they're, they're headed off, you know, to talk about, you know, maybe I, I picture a couple of them and they're probably like going, man, you know, my wife made this awesome lamb last night. It was delicious. The herbs were just, oh, man, it's great. You know, they're opening the door and then go back. Did you did you let them out? No, they're they're in there. No, they're not. No, they. Well, I didn't let them out. Did you let them out? I didn't let. Them. Did you? I imagine there's probably a few double takes. Is this the right? Is this where they? Yeah, that was where they were. I was standing here. I was in Okay, and finally they had to go back and tell them they're gone. And then they go back. They head back. Tell the council, and so the council, they're all sitting there ready. They're getting ready to, you know, do another lecture of these uh, apostles, these uh, people that are stirring up everybody. But when the officer came, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And so when they get back to the council, the, the, the high priest and the Sadducees, and they're, they're sitting there going, I mean, they're genuinely confused as to what's happening. I wish I could have been there to see this. Wouldn't this have been fun to watch? I mean, in all of their, like, we, we can just throw anybody we want in prison. And then the, the, and they're, they're all the council. The council chamber's ready, and they're ready to, and the, the guards come back, they're like, they're gone. They're gone? Where are they? they was it closed? Yeah, it was closed. They were, the doors were locked. The guards were, but they weren't there. No, they weren't there. But you, are you sure? Did you look in the right, can you imagine? It had to have gone that way. Did you go to the right place? Did you look in there? Did somebody let them out? Did you let them out? No, I didn't let them. No, nobody. They should still be there. And so they're sitting there trying to figure out what happened. They are perplexed. And someone, while this is happening, someone came and told them. So some guy, they haven't even been out to the temple yet. Some guy comes who's been to the temple and says, Hey, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. So you imagine they're, they're all trying to figure it out. And then, you know, the one guy comes up and maybe he's got to interrupt it. Excuse me, you know, hey, we're busy, we're trying to figure out what happened to the, well, it's kind of a, leave it, you know, but they're there, they're, they're at the temple, they're teaching. I, I just picture them all getting quiet, like, what did you say? They're, they're teaching, they're, they're back at the temple teaching. What are they doing at the temple? I thought you guys locked them up. Well, we did lock them up, we're trying to figure this out. They're at the temple teaching. So they, they're, they're all like scratching their heads. They're back in the temple. They don't know what's going on. And they're wondering what in the world this might come to. So the captain said, so they said, well, we've got to go get them again, right? But this time it's a little bit different. Oh, I didn't even have that up there. I apologize. There we go. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. You, you, you see this, this idea of power playing into it again, right? Because the Sadducees, here they are, they, I mean, they, they have the power, they have the control of the council, but 
there's still a little, they're, they're, I mean, do you think there was some hesitation at this point? I mean, they got let out. And, and when they go to get them this time, they're not going to grab them by force because there's some fear because they know now that there's, there's didn't it say they were, that these apostles were held in high esteem with all the people? And so they're kind of nervous about going and grabbing them because they're thinking, man, if we just go grab them, they might try to, the people might try to kill us. I mean, I think the Sadducees are clearly off their game right now, right? I have a picture of them coming up to the apostles, the guards coming up saying, instead of saying, come on, would you guys mind coming with us, right? I mean, if that's okay, could you please, pardon, please just come back with us, you know? I think it's important to know that the disciples, all throughout biblical history, the disciples never actually do respond in violence. That's important. In fact, throughout church history, true Christians never respond with violence. Just because the Sadducees were concerned about this doesn't mean that they would have ever considered this. Now, it's possible that the other people that weren't Christians that hadn't made themselves part of because of their high esteem, they, that there could have been some type of rebellion or something. But the Christians themselves, we have no reason to think that they would ever have, and they never have, responded violently. But the apostles decided to go with them. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. This would have been awkward, right? And the high priest questioned them, saying... You know, and I, I'm thinking, how much power does this guy's words have at this point? I mean, they just took him in and an angel let them out, right? So the high priest questioned, he says, we strictly we told you. Sounds like a parent, doesn't it? Didn't I tell you not to teach about this, right? We strictly told you, charged you not to teach in his name. We're, uh, yet, yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, so you've done the opposite. Not only did you not stop, you filled the whole city with your teaching. And they say this, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Who's this man? Who's he talking about? Jesus. I mean, and, and they have done that, haven't they? Haven't they? Every time Peter's preach has it, at some point Peter said, Jesus, whom you killed. Jesus, whom you killed. Jesus, whom you killed. Last time he was with the council, didn't he say that to the council? Jesus, whom you guys had killed. So they're sitting there going, and you're making us, I mean, basically, you're making us look bad. You're trying to make this guy that you're, everybody's loving Jesus right now. And you're trying to make us look bad. You're trying to put his blood on us. Which is so interesting because when they were being crucified, when Christ was being crucified, and, and Pilate said, you know, yeah. And they say, let, let his blood, blood be upon us and on our children. Well, now the tune has changed, hasn't it? These Sadducees are like, you're trying to put his blood on us. And I, I'm surprised Peter didn't bring it up. Didn't you say? He doesn't do that. I think Peter may be thinking back to the first time. In Acts 4.19, uh, it says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We know what the truth is. He responds very similarly this time. He says this. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That's the one exception. As Christians, we ought to obey God. 
our earthly authorities as much as is humanly possible. The only exception is when somebody says, don't preach in the name of Christ. When we're called to go against what God says, we must obey God rather than men. But consider the implication here. Already. I mean, if Peter's saying we ought to obey God rather than men, isn't he implying that these Sadducees are not speaking on God's behalf? But that's precisely what the Sadducees are saying they're doing. We're, we're saying we're, we're speaking on God's behalf. We're, for, we're Jewish council. We're, we're here to enforce and enact what God says. Isn't Peter ultimately saying, you're on the wrong side. You missed it. Peter goes on further, and this is really good because he says this. He says, the God of our fathers. Now, this is important because he wants to make sure that the Sadducees understand that for Peter, Peter's not saying, I've got a different God. He's saying, the God of our our fathers, you Sadducees, the God of our fathers, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Bible that you say you believe in. The God of our fathers raised Jesus. And he does it again. Whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now this is an important phrasing because in the Old Testament, when it talks about someone being hung on a tree, right? Christ was crucified. Being hung on a tree meant that that person was uh, cursed by God. Cursed is the one who is hung upon a tree. And so when Peter's saying this, what he's saying is, when you had him hung on a tree. Now we know it was a Roman crucifixion. But the execution, because it was pushed by these people, these Sadducees, these Pharisees, because it was pushed by them, it was all about this. Cursed be someone who's hung on a tree. But Peter says, even though he was cursed, became cursed by God by being hung on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the core of the gospel. Christ became a curse for us so that we might not be cursed by God. That's what Peter's teaching them right now. And it's the same God, Sadducees, it's the same God that you worship. That's the one, he's the one that raised Christ from the dead. And since now he's exalted, if we believe in him, then we will also be exalted with him one day. Peter goes on. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Who not, not put yourself in the, the seat of the Sadducees as you're hearing these words. We are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is witness as well. Whom God has given to those who obey him. What's he now implying? What, if, you're, if you're a Sadducee and you're reading between the lines, what, what is Peter saying? Peter, It's like Peter's up there going, we've got God, we've got the Spirit of God, you don't. You could, but you don't until you acknowledge Christ. How do you think they're going to react to this? Do you think they're going to go, oh, he's right. How do we, we said a minute ago, how do people with power respond when they feel their power being pulled away from them? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. I'm going to tell you right now, I've been mad at people before. 
If I have never in my head thought, I'm going to kill you. Not literally. I may have said that a couple times to one of my sons. I'll kill you. Not really. But these men, they're so enraged that they're ready to commit murder right then and right there. We should be surprised at this. They've done this before. Now, the next thing that happens, I always find a little bit intriguing. I'm always not for sure where to place this. I don't quite know how to handle what happens then. It's interesting. I don't know what to do with it. Remember I said there was two parties? Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, listen. One of the Pharisees decides to speak up. His name is Gamaliel. Gamaliel, well, I'll tell you about him in a minute. Pharisee in the council, so the council is not all Sadducees. There's at least one Pharisee on the council. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for the wall. So it basically says, we're going to go into closed sessions for a minute. I mean, I think in, in some sense, what we're going to see next is just some, some good common sense wisdom. Whether it's for good reasons or not, Gamaliel says, God, I mean, he sees where this is going. They're getting ready to kill these guys. And he goes, uh, let's take a recess. Okay? Um, take them out for a minute. Let's have a closed session here, fellas. Let's kind of. And, and what we know of Gamaliel from out, there's other sources outside of the Bible that talk about Gamaliel. And what we know of Gamaliel is that he was a respected teacher, just like it says here, he was a respected teacher. And he was a firm upholder of the law. So I think that might be playing into what he's doing here a little bit. We've got to do things the right way. Okay? Whatever we're going to do. And so he says this. He said to the men of Israel, Take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, and so he's going to give two examples here. And he gives this first one. Before these days, Thutis rose up. We don't know a lot about Thutis. Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. You get what he's saying here? He's saying, you, you, kill the, you cut up the head, the body dies, right? The, the leader was killed, the, the, he kind of disperses. They remember Thutis, and they would have remembered, oh yeah, Thutis, that's true. Thutis died, and then his following, 400 men, it just kind of dispersed. Who, did, who had they just killed recently? Jesus. Jesus. You, you see where Gamaliel might be going here? He says this next. He says, and after him, Judas the Galilean. So here's this other guy. We do have some sources outside the Bible. We'll talk about this guy. Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. Okay, this is about, about AD 6. Okay, so this was a while before there. Uh, in the days of the census and drew away some after the some of the people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So he gives two examples in recent history of people who kind of rose up, started something, started a revolt, started some type of following. When they died, the, everything kind of dispersed. I think it's possible that Gamaliel may be saying, let's leave this alone. We killed Jesus. Let's kind of, you know, may seem like it's going somewhere now. So he goes on, he says, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone for it. And this is where it gets so interesting to me. This is, this is great wisdom on Gamaliel's part. 
If this plan uh, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to over overthrow them. I mean, if it's of man, it's going to fail anyway. You don't really need to intervene and stop it. The only other option is, what if it's of God? If it's of God, you can't stop it anyway. And he says this, and you might even find yourselves, you might even be found opposing God. That's smart, isn't it? I mean, if it's of men, it's going to stop anyway. We don't really have to worry about it that much. But, it, but, but if it's not of men, the only other option is that it might actually be of God. I think Gamaliel might be, honestly, I, I feel like Gamaliel might be so close to salvation. Because he's sitting here and, he's, and maybe he's recognizing, man, these guys were miraculously released just last night. The, the, these guys have been performing miracles. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he, Gamaliel would have been in the council when he saw the lame man. Maybe Gamaliel himself had seen that lame man day after day after day. And then all of a sudden he sees him standing there. I mean, Gamaliel, I think, may be sitting here going... There might be something to this. We might be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called the apostles, well, I guess they didn't take it completely, did they? They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, I don't want to skim over this. They beat them. This is the what is called in historical literature the, the 40 lashes minus one. They, they were legally allowed to give 40 lashes would kill a person. You know, I'm thinking, how did they figure this out? You know, he died 40. Um, you know, 40 lashes was considered to be a death penalty. So they were allowed to give somebody uh, that wasn't sentenced to death 39 lashes. And this is talking about like the cat, like what Jesus received. The cat of nine tails. Right? The beating. And, and a lot of times, even with the just only 39 lashes, people died from this. So don't, don't let yourself skim over what just happened to the apostles here. In fact, I, wanted, I want you to, as you enter into the story, I want you to really think about what's, what just happened, what we just read. Because, you remember at the beginning when I said, you might be thinking, because God intervened so dramatically with Ananias and Sapphira, some, some stuff going on, on the inside. You, you might have thought that this might have turned out a little bit different. I mean, he did just release them the night before. Would you have, as an apostle at this point, would you have been thinking, I bet he's going to rescue. I mean, I would be, that's what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, I wonder, you know, Sadducee leader here, um, I, I'm waiting for him to drop dead. Isn't that kind of what we want as Christians sometimes? We want that type of intervention all the time. Somebody poses, we, we kind of in the back of that. We don't necessarily want people to drop dead. But we, we want, you know, you're going to oppose God? Is that what you're going to do? And don't we kind of want God to like come in right then? But instead, what happens? Don't preach the name of Jesus. There's the threat again. But then they take them out. And they're beaten. This would have been a horrific incident for any one of us in this room. How do you think the disciples are going to react to this? Discouragement? Why didn't God intervene? Why don't were we doing something wrong? Is that how it's going to be? 
I want you to marvel at how they respond. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I picture Peter and the apostles, maybe even as they're being beaten, and then as they're walking away going, maybe looking at each other. God, can, I mean, this is what it says, so this must be what, what happened. God counted us, and you see the smile start to creep up on their faces as they're thinking of their, I mean, as they're, I, I imagine, limping out. I mean, it's feeling like nothing at this point. We were just counted worthy to suffer for the name. We were just counted worthy. I mean, Jesus received the same punch, and God thought we were worthy enough to suffer in the same way. And so they leave rejoicing. And every day in the temple, and they don't stop, do they? Every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Now, let's, let's kind of pull this all in together, because I think there's a lot that we could learn from this. There's a ton of little things we could pull from this. We're going to kind of hone in on one little thing. And, and, and I, I got some inspiration from one of the commentaries I read, this guy named Tony Meredith. He put it this way. He says, do you want real Christian joy? I mean, the real thing. Then follow the Acts model. And we're going to break this down in a minute. He, he puts it this way. He says, be compassionate towards the needy. Be bold in your Christian witness. Be filled with integrity, respect, and humility before people. You will face opposition, and you will be filled with joy. I just love this. Not just now. Not just now. But even billions of years from now, you will never regret having suffered for the name. You will never regret having suffered for the name. I want to break this down because when I, 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 was, I was working through this, I thought, man, where, where am I going to go with this? Where, I mean, there's so many little things here. We could talk about this, talk about this. I thought, where am I going to go with this? And I think this is where we ought to go with this, is this idea of the Acts model of evangelism. Which is so interesting because this morning there were several of you that were talking in Sunday school and then later on talking about evangelism, talking about sharing the gospel. And so let's look at this Acts model. So I want to break it down to a few points here. Number one, be compassionate toward the needy. Don't we see the apostles doing that? Exact thing? Reaching out towards the needy, the sick. And this is why this is so important that we have Christian ministries that we are either a part of or that we get connected with where we... We, we recognize, and this is such a weird way to think about how to grow a church, because when you think about how to grow a church, you think about how to grow any organization, a lot of times, what do you think? We want the influential, powerful people. Let's get some people with money, right? People with their acts together. They got their lives all together. We want some good, solid people to come. That's not, how, that's not the acts model of growing the church, is it? The acts model of growing the church is let's get all the messed up people. All the broken down people. All the people that are poor in spirit. They know they've got nothing. Even the people that are rich. 
like Barnabas. He might have some property, but you see this, this poor in spirit mentality. And where does the gospel reach out to exactly those people? When we're out and about, that's exactly who we need to have our eyes open to. Those who are poor and needy and the outcasts and the downtrodden. Those are the people that are, are just ready for the gospel. Be compassionate toward the needy. Number two, be, be bold in your Christian witness. This is what these Christians pray for at the beginning. We read that a few chapters ago. This is what the, these apostles do. They're just bold. They're just bold in their Christian witness. Every chance that Peter gets, he starts talking about Jesus. Every opportunity that Peter gets, he goes right into it again. I mean, it's a very similar story. He has a, kind of a similar pattern, right? Explanation of what's going on. See, this could happen for you too. You know, maybe you're at work. Maybe something bad has happened. But instead of responding the way most people would expect, you respond differently. And people look at you and go, well, that's miraculous. Why would you respond that way? I mean, you just experienced death or you experienced trauma or you experienced this or this. But instead of getting all upset, you, you're, you're responding with grace and, 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 and peace. How is it possible? And then you go, you can do what Peter does. Well, let me tell you. Let me tell you. This, this can be explained by only one thing, Jesus. Jesus became a curse for us. He was crucified on a tree. He died, was buried, he was resurrected. And now I'm following him. See, we can do the same thing Peter did. We can follow this Acts model as we're compassionate towards the needy, but we can be bold in our witness using every opportunity, just the same way Peter did, every chance you get. I always struggle with knowing how far to be bold when I'm at school because I know that on one hand, legally, I can't just, as a school teacher in a public school, I can't just go, hey guys, today's lesson is about Jesus. I can't do that. But man, when they ask me something, right? My favorite one is when they go, Mr. Harmless, you never get mad at us. And I don't. I, I purposely try to. It's not easy. You guys met teenagers before? <laughs> but, but by God's grace, I've, I, I've been able to just adopt this, this spirit that no matter what they do, and, and, and everyone, in fact, my, my student teacher, I was telling him today, uh, or uh, this last week, I said, you know, one of the best things you can do as a, as a teacher, as a new teacher coming to it, is that you, you have to have, because he's a Christian, a new Christian, but I, I'm like, you have to have that grace that it, it's new every morning. Your mercy is new every morning with those kids. So they come in, doesn't matter what this kid did yesterday, when he comes in tomorrow, you're going to say, oh man, I'm so glad to see you. And you mean it from the bottom of your heart. You mean it from the depths of your being. Doesn't matter what you did. Doesn't matter if you cussed me out yesterday. When I see you tomorrow, it's new. It's a new day. And I've got hope for you. I've got hope that you can do your homework today. And I've got hope that you can accomplish what you're supposed to do. I've got hope that you can be uh, well-behaved today, right? And I'll have kids, they'll say, Mr. Ramos, I would have punched that kid in the face. <laughs> you know? Well, first of all, I can't do that. But uh, you know why? Because I love Jesus. And Jesus talks about, the Bible talks about, and I'll, I'll just start telling them about it. And using every opportunity to be bold in your witness. It's so much easier to be bold in your witness when, when you start off with the, uh, the first part, being compassionate toward the needy. Number three, this is hugely important, be humble in your interactions with non-believers. You see this with the disciples. 
even before the Jewish council, there's not a, an arrogance with the Jewish council. Did you see any arrogance with Peter? Is he, I mean, you, 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 I could have read it differently and made it sound that way. But if you really think about how Peter responds, he always still responds, even with those guys who had Christ guilty, always responds with the opportunity for repentance and hope. The God of, your, of our fathers is the one that raised Christ from the dead. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and if you obey him, for anybody who obeys him, you can be right in on this too. When Peter responds, the apostles respond with humility towards outsiders and towards non-believers. This next one here, for following the Acts model, this one must be said. I put down religious activities because in the book of James it says religion, pure and undefiled, is, is feeding the fathers and taking care of widows. I mean, there, there, there's an aspect of what we do as Christians, that, but it must be genuine. You think of Ananias and Sapphira and their, their falsehood. We need to be genuine in all that we do, in our giving, in our sharing. Every aspect of this church Christian life ought to be genuine, the real deal. But then finally, be joyful when you suffer for the sake of the name. I know that some of our suffering might not be anywhere near what those apostles just went through. I mean, is it even close? Can it even fall into the same category? I mean, I think there's some measure of hostility towards Christianity that we're, we're, we're experiencing more and more. Where you, you, I was just reading the other day, there was an article where um, it was like in a newspaper, it was like one of those write-in to the person, and it was talking about how, how offensive it is when somebody says, what church do you go to? Something as simple as that. I mean, it's more and more getting to where what we do as Christians to, to, to try to talk to somebody else about their faith, about Christianity, about God. It, many people respond, whoa. I don't think we're that far away from it going a step further and a step further and a step further. I mean, how far away are we from like those Sadducees who are enraged and want to kill that's one of the things that we're going to see as Acts unfolds. What happened the first time that they were taken into prison? Threatened. What happened this time? Beat. And we're going to see as this story progresses, if you know anything about Acts, does it stop at beatings? In fact, we're going to see really soon the first, what we call the first Christian martyr, Stephen. This is what the story is building up towards. The opposition is getting fiercer and fiercer and fiercer until we're going to get to the story of Stephen who ends up being killed for the sake of the name. I don't think we're that far away from those things. I, I think that you look throughout history and you see these things can sometimes happen like that. Where Christians go from being acceptable to not so acceptable to we, we should kill them. They're ruining our society. But whatever your suffering is, maybe it's just hostility. Maybe it's just false accusation. As you attempt to be a Christian in this world. I think that happens quite a bit, doesn't it? Well, they say, they say, you're so judgmental. I didn't judge anybody. I was just, you know, 
talking about Jesus. Why do you judge me? And you're thinking, I love you. Tony Merida again, I want to use another quote of his. He says this, Christians can take a beating with joy because Jesus took the ultimate, the ultimate beating for us. Even rising from the dead for us. One day, this is true, one day the mighty will cower at his terrifying justice. So align yourself with this king and you too can rejoice. This is my encouragement for you as you go out through this week to follow the Acts model of evangelism. Compassion, humility, genuineness, authenticity, bold in our witness. But if we do all those things and people don't respond with, oh, we love you. But if instead they respond with, Maybe it's just that look, like, I don't know about you. Maybe they shun you. They don't want anything to do with you anymore. Separate from you. I know that's not a beating. But you can still take joy even in those things. I was counted worthy to suffer. I know it's not that measure of suffering, but I'm still counted worthy to suffer for the sake of many. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. I don't want to be a doomsayer, but you never know. Could it be possible in our lifetimes that the world might change drastic, in, in such a drastic measure that Christians might be treated this way again? It's possible. I want to encourage you to think differently about that, to think differently about that. Instead of just thinking, we can be grateful and thankful that we're not there yet. I mean, I'm thankful. It's not like I'm sitting here going, man, I really, my back was feeling too nice today. I'd love to have a beat. You know, that, it's not that. We can be thankful. But on some measure as a Christian, as we look at the, the influence of Peter, we look at his attitude about this. On some measure, in some little area of your heart, you ought to, and we ought to, say, I almost wish it would get to that point. Because if I could have the opportunity to suffer for the sake of the name, what a glorious thing that would be. What a glorious thing that would be. There are Christians all over this planet right now that are suffering harsh like this for the sake of the name. We've got it pretty easy right now. But don't cling so strongly to that that you can't kind of reach over to the other side and say, I'm ready for this. If you call me to this, God, I'm ready. I'm ready. I, I would love to be counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for this day. And Lord, I just want to take a moment and just ask that you would prepare our hearts, our minds, Lord, to to be ready and willing, Lord. We may never have the opportunity to suffer to this extent for the sake of the name. We may never have that opportunity, Lord. I don't know what you have in store for, for this part of the globe. But God, I pray that we'd be willing, ready, and, and maybe 
in some crazy way a bit eager for an opportunity to suffer for the sake of the name. Help us not to shy away from that. Help us not to have such a strong love for our own comfort that we would shy away from those opportunities. Help us, Lord, to be bold in our witness. Lord, even if our boldness might stir the pot towards that direction, Lord, help us to be bold in our witness. Not arrogant, not a jerk, bold. I pray all of this because you became a curse for us. We know that we're going to stand in eternity with you. And so I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed.